0: Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me. Imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Tini, and this is The Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another wonderful episode. Today, we are going to interview an expert who has a multi-career. She has been in NGOs, she has been in the private sector and now she's working in the banking sector. So she's somebody who is an expert in sustainability and has seen the multi of this um, profession and she can dig deeper and give us wonderful insight. I'm very pleased to welcome Katerina Elia Trostman Which is sorry for the pronunciation from Brazil. Thank you so much, Caterina.
1: Thank you Samuel. No, you got it very right. Don't worry. It's a
0: with the podcast, I got people from all over the world, so I'm getting used to two names. I can see some German in you, so, you know, uh, you can tell a bit, you know, you are in Brazil now, you're working in the banking sector, mm. but tell us your sustainability journey, Which how you have become an expert in this field. That's
1: kind of you to say, I consider myself an expert in making, I think, the sustainability agenda is so dynamic and so fast that you need to uh, continuously to be open and engage with the topic a very curious way right so I think sustainability is an uh, agenda in evolution it's not a line that you cross I don't think you you are a sustainability expert it, it's constantly developing which I think is fantastic because it's so transversal sustainability really addresses every single impact of our lives now, from the individual consumption level all the way to the big strategic macro policy questions like how do you decarbonize entire transportation sectors for example um that's why i think it's all encompassing and it's really quite it's it's systemic so to me for example i think sustainability is driven by climate change so i think climate change is the the key driver again also um, impacts every single aspect and sector and it's a systemic problem and systemic problem requires systemic solutions and i think my just my background like Growing up in a multicultural household, my dad is German, my mum's Brazilian, and I was born, I grew up in London. I went to a German school, then I went to a state um, English school. So having those different perspectives, you know, a a small German school full of German expats where I never really fit in because I wasn't German enough, which was quite weird. And then going to um, a large, huge English state school. These are just very different experiences and the bit of a culture clash or different cultural worlds between my parents also just means I was always exposed to different perspectives and different ways of seeing either problems or situations. And I think that is what sustainability is. Um, It's really important to come at sustainability challenges like food, for example, or even inequality or consumption or um, emissions, understanding it from the various perspectives. And that's slightly reflected, I think, in my sustainability journey, which was your question. So I started out Um, After doing my master's in London, I started out in the UK, but then I moved to Brazil to help launch WRI Brazil, so the Brazilian office of the World Resource Institute. I spent five years there, primarily working on climate adaptation, which was fantastic, because it brought the issue of climate change within the heart of social issues. I think mitigation is super important. I do miss sometimes, or I did think that up until recently, mitigation was very focused on just CO2 reduction or dominated by that type of language. Climate adaptation brought in a more complex analysis of, okay, climate change is happening. What are the impacts, what are the consequences on the impacts on different groups of people? So different groups of people feel it differently, right? Depending not only on geographic factors, but also in socioeconomic factors. So I spent five years there working with different levels of government, went to the UK government because I wanted to see the other side of the coin. Literally, I wanted to go from implementer to project financer. So answering questions like how do you deploy climate finance at scale in brazil and spent nearly two years there and now currently i am at an international bank in brazil focusing on how to push and accelerate and leverage finance for sustainability outcomes in the private sector so really tying sustainability objectives to financial issuances which is super interesting and very very new and i never thought i'd be
0: in banking wow you started at the grassroots level Working with the implementation, then you went to finance and now you are at the finance at the highest level, you know, in the bank, in the private sector. Let me ask you, you know, with this, your multi-sector career, which is the perspective you can give the audience and then what has taught you? about the topic of sustainability and we can tackle it.
1: Well, I've always enjoyed working at the intersection of different sectors and learning from different people. So personally, I try to adopt a growth mindset and that I can learn from any situation or any interaction with someone. Someone always has something to show you that you're not aware of. So that would be my first point, like be open to learning and to actually adopt active listening. So that you can really engage with what someone is telling you about, be it their experience in in a low income community about how climate change is affecting them, about how to govern for deforestation, for example, or, you know, what a a company's vision on how to push sustainability in their activities and operations. So that would be my first point. And that's tied to my second point, which is working across these different sectors is really and having like an open mindset has really made me always challenge my assumptions. So I really try not to lead with or work with assumptions and also stereotypes, right? So, um, and I suppose the third thing that 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 leads to is asking open questions. So I've always found that going into new sectors um, and working with new stakeholders, a really good way to build positive relationships and really get to the heart of certain matters is by asking open questions and then adopting a growth mindset and challenging assumptions, et cetera, enables you to build a really good relationship based on constructive exchanges, trying to really understand what the key drivers and variables are so that you can then start getting to effective solutions. I think it, it is possible to work with sustainability across sectors if you, have, if you approach it from like a very open perspective, if you have certain transversal skills. I think it's just always humbled me, perhaps, to work across these different organizations. And I wouldn't say that I started off in a grassroots organization. WRI is very much an institutional, large and think tank NGO, very well funded. It's not grassroots, but I had contact with grassroots organizations. And that to me, I think one of the key principles that I try to take forward in my work is to place climate justice at the heart of anything that I do without climate justice, we won't actually be overcoming certain key inequalities that actually contribute to the climate change impacts that we see. And that is valid for work in the NGO, public or and the private sector.
0: I think the last point you touch is actually linked with our last episode in the podcast I speak with people in the from the Amazon in the in the coming month oh excellent yeah so you know maybe we I can ask a question on that you know what is the your take now on the Amazon if you can talk of that or if it's too charged we can jump to another question
1: (laughs) no it's no it's not too hard I've written about it and um it is a topic that I am currently engaging in, I'm currently writing an article on climate justice in climate finance for the Amazon. Growing up in the UK, the Amazon, in Europe at least, is really pictured as this far-flung, large, isolated, you know, wild jungle, right, uh, rainforest. It's really part of, at least in Europe, part of this, like, fantasy imagination of original primary forest. And in Brazil, I mean, living here now, I'm equidistant from the Amazon as I would be from London to Moscow. And the majority of people in Brazil live in the Southeast, right? So a lot of Brazilians don't actually have contact with the Amazon because it's huge and it's far away and it's expensive to get there. So, I mean, I think it's worth breaking down what the Amazon is because I've noticed a lot of, let's say Northern hemisphere colleagues and, and friends. For example, they have a different impression. So it's technically incorrect to say the Amazon are the lungs of the world, right? Which is something that we hear often. The Amazon in Brazil is larger than Western Europe. It's home to 27 million people. 69% of these people who live there live in cities. The, The economy based in the Amazon is mainly extractivist commodities. So mining, cattle, soy, a bit of timber, and then you have some other economic activities like non-timber forest products like nuts oils fruit cocoa and rubber for instance and the amazon has always been subject to competing interests so there are many different development phases i mean one of the it, it begins to be occupied by the military government in the 50s because the brazilian military government wanted to secure the borders with the other countries so you had a lot of military occupation moving in there and then the government throughout up until the 70s and 80s, encouraged occupation in the Amazon. So invited people from the South of Brazil to go and set up farms. So, you know, they would exchange their smaller farms in the South of Brazil for large swaths of land in the Amazon. And were encouraged to deforest in order to turn, in order to push Brazil to become a key agriculture powerhouse, which they did. So there are places called Sorizo, which in Italian is sorizo, which you will understand means only rice. Um, which today, it's because about 40 years ago, there was nothing there. There was just a petrol station in the middle of a dirt road. And today it looks like a suburb of Los Angeles because it's so rich. It has really high a- HDI indexes. So agriculture pushed by the Brazilian government and Embrapa, for example, the Brazilian Agriculture Agency, has been really key to developing a huge industry, which has brought a lot of prosperity to a lot of people. But that, So Brazil is today a huge agricultural export it has come at the expense of um, forests and forests communities. So the challenge today for the Amazon is how do you harmonize agricultural production with justice, with land rights, with climate smart agriculture? Because Brazil has millions, I think over 12 million hectares of degraded pasture lands, which means that in order to develop agriculture, we, Brazil really doesn't need to cut down a single tree, it just needs to optimize and make better use of this land that is already opened and has been degraded because it's not looked after, you have to look after land that you open, right, and to improve for efficiencies. So just going back, step back, right, so there was a phase of the military going into secure borders and then human occupation to to push for agriculture development, large infrastructure like hydro dams in the 80s and 90s. And then it was really in the late 80s, 90s that Brazil became like a big hot topic for the, around the Amazon, right? Where it really started attracting attention. Chico Mendes, a really important environmental activist in the Amazon from Acre, really mobilized not just national support, but international support for Amazonian protection and influenced how, for example, the World Bank provides lending to infrastructure projects in the Amazon. He was really important to, bring the struggle of the forest communities to an international spotlight, and he paid for his own life, unfortunately, right? So Amazonian defenders, you know, they run very, very high risks for standing up for forest protection and their own people's communities. And now what we're seeing, unfortunately, is a rollback of key protective policies, command and control policies, and illegal mining has exploded, for example, and never was an issue in Brazil, and now it is. We see high deforestation rates, the third highest in three years in a row. So it is a really important issue. If Brazilian agriculture wants to survive, it needs to ensure that no single tree is cut down because the Amazon is not the lungs of the world. The Amazon is a rain and carbon cycle regulator. So in Brazil, it has a function of pulling humidity from the northern hemisphere down into the heartland of Brazil um, and irrigating through rain the majority of Brazilian agriculture. And over the past 30 years, Brazil has already lost 16%, nearly 16% of its surface water. Um, This is data from Mapa Biomas, for instance. So the Amazon is, you know, it's a huge, it's how do you value it? How do you protect it? You need command and control policies, you need companies to commit to zero deforestation in the supply chains. And again, going back to what we said at the beginning, climate change is a systemic issue, as is Amazon deforestation. You need, you need all actors engaged and mobilised, all the way from grassroots organisations to CFOs and C-suite boardrooms um, in London, for example, and in other financial capitals across the world, which we definitely saw last year with the Amazon fires. We'd never seen so much private sector mobilisation. I'm optimistic that we're going in the right direction. The question is, are we going in the right direction fast enough?
0: Very interesting points. I think the episode we are going to release now in three days is called the economics of sustainable foods. And we were discussing, especially regenerative agriculture and the way we can enable positive agriculture, and not negative one. And I think this is crucial. I want to point out the last sentence you said the role of the private sector and finance. You know, there is a lot of discussion now, the better business movement, the shared value and the B Corp movement, which is now, I think, going mainstream and just finished reading better business. So I want to ask you, you know, how, since you are now at the art of the private sector, you are in the banking sector, which is the most important one, I think is in, in one of the most crucial for the capitalistic system, how we can unlock, you know, and make sure. That the private sector and finance play their role to really become the business for good, as it is said now?
1: It's a great question. And when I graduated from my master's about 10 years ago, the kinds of jobs available to us, I did environmental technology with a focus on business. And it was very much like environmental quality assurance, environmental control. Um, very, very linked to issues of pollution, for example. Um, And I'm not an ecologist. I'm not um, from that field. And then suddenly, about like five to six years ago, I saw all these new roles happening and occurring where, you know, the private sector really started hiring for people with a cross-sector understanding of sustainability to integrate sustainability into their strategy, into their operations, into their activities across products and across services. So I've definitely seen a transformation just in the job side when, you know, looking for jobs and graduates today will have access to a plethora of jobs that we didn't about nine, eight to nine years ago. So I definitely think that companies have understood that, you know, I, I work at a bank that's 200 years old and I know that our bank understands that if they want to If the bank wants to survive for another 200 years, it has to respond and integrate sustainability and the climate change lens into everything that we do. Focusing on finance, there are certain things that make me very optimistic. So the the task force for climate-related financial disclosures and the other task force for nature-related financial disclosures is doing something that, you know, we spoke about, again, in my master's eight, nine years ago, the aim is to internalize and to price externalities. So on the tcfd the the climate related financial disclosures is all about bringing data on climate impacts and climate risk into financial credit making decision right um, and the same with the tnfd the, the task force for nature related financial disclosure it's about pricing um, and quantifying the risk of biodiversity loss and what that means for example for a portfolio for the agriculture sector right so by bringing in this data into credit committees and, and credit decisions You know, it's going to help shift finance away, perhaps, from unsustainable projects and activities towards more sustainable projects and activities. So really supporting the shift of capital allocation. And that's the role of finance. Right. I find that super interesting. I think that's very transversal. I think it's fantastic to bring, you know, this data on risk into financial decision making. And again, like I I started working with adaptation five years ago at WRI. And that's, we focused more on the physical risks of climate change, right? On on low income communities and cities. And now to see that being translated into other sectors, the private sector and the financial sector is really promising, very, very promising. And we see a lot of companies setting net zero goals to meet them by 2050. A lot of some companies are bringing those forwards. And I think after this COP26, which was huge and had a very big private sector participation, you know, pros and cons. I think it's really important to always look at everything from a critical analysis point of view, but you cannot deny that companies are engaged. They're looking to understand how to work with climate change, how to set zero carbon targets, and also how to implement decarbonisation plans. So I think COP is important, and and what happens after COP is even more important. I think we're going to see companies releasing decarbonisation plans, or at least not releasing them, but making their plans, Focusing on identifying the climate opportunities, the climate risks, identifying climate CAPEX or green CAPEX, um, setting intermediary targets, which is really important, and working with a range of stakeholders to make good on those targets.
0: Very interesting, Katina. I think you touched a very interesting point. You know, I can recall, I mean, walking in Glasgow at the COP, I have seen a huge presence of the private sector. And there are, I mean, different ways, I'm on the optimistic side, but of course, we need and then that's why is going my question, you know, the key problem we are seeing, you know, is what some critics of the COP and also of this new wave of the bandwagon of sustainability for companies, the greenwashing. And then it's, it's just the usual business as usual with a bit of paint. So my question to you that you are at the art of the finance sector, how we can foster inclusion in the finance sector to have this financial flow? to go where it is needed the most, the communities that are affected the most by climate change.
1: Climate justice, it's about how do you bring climate justice into the heart of finance? I think it's worth touching upon public climate finance here, whose role, when we look at what the role of the public sector, it is to level out inequalities, it is to promote inclusion, it is to ensure that everyone has a fair chance, right? I think that's very, very key. We'll come to greenwashing in a bit. I think greenwashing you know, is definitely something that needs to be addressed um, and can be done through, through regulation, and it's great to see some really innovative regulation coming out. On climate justice, if we look at all the climate funds that are available, and we just take the Amazon, there are so many new funds being developed. It's about how are those funds accessed and who are they meant for, who are they designed for. So it's really important, I think, to ensure that beneficiaries needs and, and profiles and, and also desires are involved in the creation of new funds or new financing for sustainability projects. How can they be included? One, engage them in the design, ask them what they need. Sometimes the, the application process can be very difficult. You have to fill out pages and pages and pages. And when we look at frontline environmental defenders, they're at the frontline doing environmental defending. They, you, you know, It's not bureaucratic. So you know, what if they could submit videos? What if they could submit audios? What if they could just, you know, c- could there be an easier way to access financing? I'm talking about public climate finance, right? So grants, for example. Two, have those communities sit on the boards of these funds and support the decision and where to allocate those funds, right? Or those grants. That's super important. And I think three, uh, monitoring and evaluation is super key for these types of grant-making mechanisms. And I think it's great to not necessarily always to support that funding organisations, support monitoring and evaluation through their own operations, right? It shouldn't have to fall on beneficiaries or frontline communities. And then finally, technical assistance. So supporting, providing technical assistance um, to, to help projects or communities improve their readiness to access these types of financing. There's lots of great organisations doing fantastic work on this, like the Open Society Foundations, for example, they're looking at how to integrate climate justice into climate finance. Um, and I think it's absolutely key, without these communities, forest communities, and I'm I'm particularly thinking about Amazonian forest communities, if we don't include them in climate finance, we won't be able to generate the best impact and benefits that we could.
0: Fantastic, fantastic points. Katerina, I think you have touched exactly the, the key involvement of community, I think is key, and transparency the monitor evaluation and the fact to put them on the board, not just on the side, They're just to have them showcasing, yes.
1: Oh, absolutely. Engagement as partners and not just grantees. Absolutely. I think it's really key. This COP26 was crucial to spotlight climate justice, which I think was great. And you had a lot of different indigenous leaders asking for more protagonism and more engagement in climate finance design and also mechanisms. Because we have a huge gap to fill, don't we?
0: Yes, we are just a year down the the line of the the tipping point and all this. uh, So, you know, we really need to put community, especially the Indigenous community, at the forefront Because without the protection of this ancestral land, the lands, of course, then we'll have many, especially uh, as you said, on the Amazon. I think we have done a very good excursus. We started with the work, with the different works, and then now we have set up um, a small manifesto on how to create a, a good policy. For having a, a good finance, which is, you know, it seems uh, straightforward, but I sometimes feel uh, frustrated in my work going through maybe 50 pages of applications, which they can be discouraging for somebody. As we were in COP with people that are just maybe on very different and grassroots community that they have to fight and work there with pressing issues, not the bureaucracy. So, it's really interesting as a way to sum up your contribution and way. You know, usually we ask the, the guests to give us um, a small message, a small call to action. And from your perspective, the business, the finance, the NGO, which could be a message that you want to give to, to people?
1: So having gone from an international NGO, government and private sector now, like i really had my assumptions challenged. You know, we all do a little bit of oh, I think it's going to be like that, or will it be like that? You know, we all have preconceived ideas. So I think my message would be, you know, climate change is very urgent and requires radical new partnerships. So I think if we have to address it together, um, and I would love to see, for example, business leaders learning from indigenous leaders, for example, and vice versa. So really seeing these radical partnerships placing climate justice at the heart of the partnerships, of climate action, of climate strategies. So I think I suppose that's my message, like challenging assumptions and building radical partnerships to really drive climate justice forwards.
0: Thank you so much. It's really something that is often overlooked, but we need to do it more. Just on that
1: point, I think what I want to try and say there is um, the situation that we're confronted with has forced new leadership to come to the fore so we've seen Brazilian state governors come to the fore we've seen the private sector become engaged and really try to learn about deforestation we've seen probably more effective commitments being made with greater detail and this COP26 was also the COP of biodiversity and definitely forests so off the back of what is a very crucial and and almost scary moment because the Amazon is close to a tipping point. We've seen a lot of new leadership step forwards and hopefully be able to implement meaningful change that could revert deforestation and begin also restoring the Amazon rainforest.
0: I think that you have clarified the. Uh very well the, the concept and i want just to, to thank you so much uh Katerina, for your time and for your insights we will continue to monitor the status and the, the work and uh, really your, your journey towards a more inclusive and strong finance sector thank you so much
1: thank you for inviting and for having me somewhere it's been a real pleasure
0: are you satisfied after this wonderful episode let's continue together our sustainability journey